it's quite brutal to some of the listeners, but it ended up being the best day of my life because I had to go through that. I had to witness those things to go through the changes. And I'll talk a little bit about the changes in a minute, but I had to go through it. And it was an unfortunate thing I had to go through. And I wish I never had to, but I had to do it. I, I think anybody that struggled with their mental health and has come through the other side, the key thing has come through the other side, and hears you say that that was the best day of your life and the worst, yep. will understand exactly what you're talking about. I say the best depression is the best thing that ever happened to me. Welcome to the Prime Life Project podcast, a place to help you unlock your full potential, both mentally and physically, to become the best version of you. Welcome back to another episode of the Primal Project Podcast, a place to help both mentally and physically become the best version of yourself. Today, I've got a fantastic guest. I'm actually recording this post-show. The reason I'm recording it post-show is because I messed up the introduction, so I'm just re-recording it. I didn't get the guest's name wrong. Uh, I just messed up the introduction, so I wanted to re-record it to do it justice. And although this topic, we are specifically talking about men's mental health, there is so many nuggets in here about mental health in general. So this is one of those episodes where if you're a long-time listener, you will know what kind of episode where I mean, where as soon as you're listening to it, it's just golden nugget after golden nugget after golden nugget. And it's just a guest coming on, uh, being really raw, authentic and genuine. And it was a fantastic conversation. And I know you're going to absolutely love it. So my guest today is Rob Hosking. And Rob is a former frontline police officer who served more than five years on the force. Throughout his time, he failed to take care of his own mental health and well-being. On his last shift with the police, he witnessed two very traumatic instances which changed his life. Since leaving the police force, Rob found that the process of healing from this experience ended up, he actually ended up recollecting many traumatic incidences that he failed to deal with at the time. Rob is now on a mission to ensure that people, especially men, open up about their mental health. He is also the co-founder of Rise of Happiness, which is a free well-being magazine aimed at continuing the fight of breaking down stigma surrounding mental health and well-being. So Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how you doing? Nice to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me on. No, honestly, very much looking forward to this today. As I said, it's one of those episodes where you've got a really amazing story. And as we mentioned before, this it, it's one of those episodes where like, where do I go with this? Because obviously I want to hear your story, but actually yeah. life after the story is where sort of the golden nuggets are. But we kind of need to go back to where it all started first in order to get these golden nuggets. So can you sort of take my audience back to where this sort of journey all started with you? Uh, and again, you, your time in the police force. Yeah, no problem. So my story really starts about 2015, and that's when I, I joined the police force. I won't lie to you, it was never uh, a fantasy lived out that I was always going to join the police, and this was my dream come true. Simply, it was a job that I decided to go for. I was in fourth year of uni, and I thought, right, I'm looking at with University and thinking, what can I do next? This job came up, and I thought, I'll go for it. A lot of my family were in the police, army, so we always had that kind of background in the family. And I thought, well, let's let's see where this goes. Step after step of going through the police process, I realized, oh, hold on, I'm getting closer to actually joining the joining the force since I was passing all the exams. I joined in, obviously I said 2015, when I was 22 years old. I look back and I think 22 years old, you're a baby you know in life never you don't have much life experience when you're 22 years old never mind when you're joining something like what the police represents and what you're going to see in a daily basis so looking back i always think i really didn't do it for the right reasons i didn't know what i was probably getting myself into i was quite naive going into it but that was it and i joined 
and it changed my life. Five years of, obviously we'll go into it, but five years of trauma, negativity, bitterness led to me leaving the force. Obviously, that's jumping, jumping ahead a little bit. <laughs> so, so I think it's quite interesting here, as you mentioned, you weren't ready to see some stuff that you saw. Again, I don't think this is necessarily just uh, indicative of the police force. I think you get it with the army and stuff like that. Do you think that you were really poorly prepared to actually join the police? Because I've sort of said this to you before, police have got a bad name, bad reputation. Yeah. People listening to this are going to think police officer and there's yeah. certain things that come to people's mind. But at the end of the day, they're just human beings. So as you started, you were literally just like any other 22-year-old. So what kind of training did you have versus what kind of stuff did you actually see? Like, what did you experience on a day-to-day basis? In the day, they'll make you, you know, the colleagues, they make you aware of, you know, the kind of things you're going to see, the sudden deaths, the murders, the horrible incidents. But it can't prepare you until you actually see it yourself. They can never prepare your mind of how your mind's going to view something until you view it. And I was kind of sheltered in my life up to 22 years old. I didn't have, you know, a, a traumatic childhood. I didn't have much trauma there in my life where I had a good childhood. I was sheltered. I had a loving family and a loving life in general. And going from that to getting exposed to drugs left, right and center, violence left, right and center, Although I know people might be listening and think, well, what did you expect? But you can't understand it until you actually are doing it. And you think, of course, it's going to be okay. But when you're actually dealing with things, you don't realize the effect it actually has on you mentally Mm -hmm. until you're you're there. So I feel like no matter what training they could give you, you will never be suitably prepared until you actually do it. I think it's one of the things where this is interesting. A good friend of mine recently, she's a um, uh, what's it, a prison guard. So she works in prisons, yeah. and she had all this training, etc. It's like she's wanted. It's like a dream job. Yeah. Long story short, she ended up having to save someone's life, and it was very, very traumatic. This person tried to take his own life in a very horrific way, and she ended yeah. up saving his life. She then completely shut down, didn't have to deal with it. She thought she was fine. Then transpires that four weeks later, she basically was really not okay and was having nightmares reliving this experience. And as you sort of mentioned, you kind of know what you're kind of getting into. People kind of tell it, tell it you, you all the first aid training, et cetera, et cetera. But until you're actually faced with that situation, even if it's not that extreme, even if it's just a case of, for example, someone here that's in a first aid course, pretty much everyone listening to this podcast at some point would have done a first aid course. So you'd like to think you know what to do. However, when someone's lying in front of you, dying, and you're having to save their life, you nothing can prepare you for that situation and then especially the aftermath of that when you come out of the adrenaline state how to actually deal with that so i think you're completely right here and i think it's i think the the biggest thing for me is that the best time to have tools to deal with it is before you need the tools it's very hard when you're in that trauma state whatever that's like and again this is not just specific to the police force this is just in life in general if you've got some sort of skills that you know can help you when you go into a situation, you've got them there ready to go. Whereas with yourself, you had nothing there anyway. Yeah. So you're then in this kind of like fight or fight response constantly. And even if people give this information, you're not really in the right space to deal with it. Is that, is that my sort of understanding? Like even if someone had come to you and given you some information, it probably wouldn't have sunk in. Yeah, I completely agree. Nothing could have, could have prepared me for what I was witnessing. And you hit the nail on the head there where when you're actually giving someone CPR, you're trying to save someone's life. 
you know, when you're doing the first date on a dummy, that will never prepare you for that real life experience. It just won't do it. And although they try and create these environments for you, whether it's you know, the first aid dummy or someone's running at you with a fake knife and you do your officer safety training and stuff, that will never compare to when someone I see is running with you, uh, running at you with a knife and what your heart rate is doing, how you're feeling, what your adrenaline's like. And then the, you will always have that come down. In the training environment, you'll never have that come down and you'll never have the adrenaline because it's just they just can't recreate it. And that's not a criticism on them. It's just, it's a fact. You just cannot recreate these kind of world life experiences until you actually are in these experiences themselves. And for me, for myself, when I was witnessing these traumatic incidents, whether it was giving someone CPR or someone was running at me with a knife, the next hour or the next two hours, you could be doing it again. So how can I then reflect on what I just witnessed when I didn't have time to compute what's just happened. My heart rate was going up, 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 and then it comes down a little bit and then it's going up and up again. You know, what is that doing to your body? And we'll look, we'll look at it. I'm sure we'll touch on it later in the mental point of view, but when we just point to point at the point, make sorry, make the point of physically, what is that doing to your body? The up and down stage, so you're getting the adrenaline, then the come down, and then you're going again and you're going again. The effects that has on your body physically is, I don't think, talked about enough. And it's interesting you mentioned this because I've interviewed some people that were in the um, Marines, the US yeah. Marines, like frontline. And this soldier was saying that he trained for four years. And then he basically shared his story of the first time he was actually being fired at. Yeah. And his exact words are that he absolutely shit himself. Yeah. His instincts kicked in. But he was like saying, he's literally, as you mentioned, he'd had all this practice, but you know you're quote unquote safe in that environment. But right then and there, when he first hit, instantly he was like, whoa. And then his instinct kicked in and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's interesting you mentioning here, this is a bit, a bit of a tangent here, but I think the, 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 the stuff you're talking about there where people are constantly living through these experiences, this, this hyped up state, that's most people most of the time. So we're talking about, yes, you and your job, and it was there happening. But most people are doing that to themselves internally with the thoughts that they're having. If you're yeah. thinking about that thought, that bad thing that's happened or whatever it is, and you're reliving that experience, mm -hmm. you're reliving it over and over again. And the body doesn't know the difference between the thought and reality. So we'll talk about the adrenaline and stuff like that. You're literally giving your body this adrenaline surge and this cortisol surge every hour, every two hours you're thinking about it. And I imagine that was maybe the same with yourself in the force as well, like the police forces, that actually it wasn't necessarily after the day. It was that evening yeah. when you kind of decop de compartmentalizing it when it kind of hit you yeah. again so you get a sudden rush again before you go to bed is that was that the case i'm not sure yeah yeah completely agree and this is when where it has knock-on effect because you can't tell me that your sleep is going to not be a, um, impacted if you didn't just have the shift you just had so i'm up at night and i can't get to sleep i'm tossing and turning but guess what i'm up in two hours because i need to go again but i can't because my mind is just thinking and it's the best time to rethink your whole day because it's the only time especially when you're working the kind of job like the police when you're in bed that's the only time you get to be just right everything's calm but your mind's not calm because your mind is thinking what it's just witnessed that whole day so it was affecting my sleep dramatically and i've got a before and after picture of me in the police and me uh, like a couple of weeks ago and you should see that on the, in the eyes like 
you could see the trauma anyway that my eyes have seen, but also the lack of sleep. I I was like the walking dead mm-hmm. and that's per- per- perfect way to actually describe it because I was just walking dead. I was just so robotic. I was just going through the motions of life. I wasn't living life. I was just going through it. And that's a difficult thing to say to yourself that you've wasted, five, well, potentially wasted five years of your life because you're not actually living life properly. You just went on this treadmill of life, which it's, it's hard to admit to yourself. Uh, were you, um, whereabouts were your police officer, by the way? Was it in, in Manchester right now? Was it back over in Ireland? No, so no, neither. So I was, I'm originally from Belfast and then I went to Scotland for a university and it was in the Scotland force. So it's in Police Scotland. Ah. Then I've moved to, to Manchester. I, I, I didn't so. know that. Because in my head I was thinking, obviously I was thinking, I know the island, certain areas in Ireland. Yeah. Like obviously you've got, you've got Belfast and Dublin, like both yeah. of them has got some dodgy areas. I didn't know where that was. So actually to yeah. complete the story that was in Scotland, okay, it makes a lot more sense to me now. I just kind of kept the dots there. Yeah. Uh, I always think it's really interesting here because... Again, I don't know anything about the police force from what apart from what I've seen in the bill when I was younger and from talking yeah. to people <laughs> in the police force. But it seems to me that you've got these people who join the police because they generally want to help their community and do better. You then take these young kids, which most of them only start, yeah. put them into these traumatic experiences, give them no training whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They're then literally, as you mentioned, the walking dead because they're basically just walking through this traumatic state. Yeah. And in that state, you can't think clearly anyway you lose yourself and you lose your ability to critically think, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which then leads to making silly decisions, poor judgment, which then gets amplified by the public and everything gets seen, which then causes a a worse image of the police force in general. Do you think the police people in charge, the powers that be, understand the effects on mental health? Because to me, it seems like a very obvious fix that there needs to be a lot more at the front end of it mm-hmm. and a lot more support during because then it gives a better quality of service by supporting yeah. the staff, which then will then in turn help the public mm-hmm. perception, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is that anything that's taken into consideration or anything that they're aware of, do you think? They will say that they're taking, away, uh, taking it on board. They say that mental health is so important and the mental health of their officers is so important, but... It will always come down to one thing, and that's budget. And as the high high you go in the police, that word budget becomes more apparent, and you forget the true meaning of the people on the ground who are actually doing the job, the the people who are doing the shifts, who are standing outside a nightclub at 3 a.m., breaking up fights, because you're just thinking, what can we do for budgets? How can we save money? How can we cut, make cuts? And the cuts always come from the front line. And it's something that... It's such a shame for the general public and they probably don't realize the extent of the cuts, but it's such a shame for the police officers themselves because they have no support. They're going from one thing to another day after day and also just on the same shift. How can they ever be able to heal themselves when they move from one thing to another? It takes your mind a certain amount of time to actually understand what it's just been through. And there is this move on culture in the police that they just expect you to go from one thing to another, where in one shift, I could have four traumatic incidents. Am I, after that first traumatic incident, has someone spoken to me? Or is someone telling me take the rest of the shift off? No, because they don't have the staff. I'm needed to stay on because they don't have any staff and I'm needed to then go to the next call because 
in your heart of hearts, you do want to help people. You're getting a call that someone's getting attacked. And you think, well, I need to help this person get attacked. But who's helping us? Mm. Who is protecting the police officers when we're trying our best to protect the public? Mm. Isn't that interesting? Because the people should be protecting you with the ones that aren't, which again, and again, it's very interesting that the, the, the real higher powers are probably so far removed from that that definitely and also i think you've got the old school again correct me if i'm wrong here because uh, again i'm not sure your age but I'm, I'm guessing you're around my similar sort of age so again you've got <clears throat> like our dads that sort of age are the top of the top and i just want to mention their attitude when it comes to mental health is kind of crack on especially if you're a male especially if you're a male it's crack on get on oh, with it yeah. and i've heard you mention in, in, in when i was hearing you, you talk on something else you mentioned about the go again culture so oh, we go again, we go again. I've heard that before as well. And it's again, uh, an old, old military friend of mine, you say the same thing. So oh, we yeah. go again. And I never really understood it until I heard you say it. Because in my head, I was like, yeah, we should go again. Let's get up and go again. But actually, when you're putting into context of how it was used, and probably in the military again, it's like, oh, you've just had this traumatic in- experience. Right, we'll get up and let's go again. I was like, oh, yeah. that's not healthy. That's not good. So you mentioned about in these police officers, how can they heal themselves? And there's this, go again culture do you actually think that any police officers or what percentage of police officers would you say do you think know that they've got an issue because as i I said did did you know that you were struggling while you were in the job or was it only very apparent on that last day because my my point is there's so many people that are struggling and i don't think many people know no and that's this is you've you've cracked the nail on the head here because this is the problem how many of them actually realize that they're potentially suffering from mental health issues? My answer to that is not many. I think the percentage will be so low. You know, I think less than 10% of the whole police force will understand that they're actually going through mental health issues. And I was, I was that person. I knew that there was changes in me because I knew that I had, before the police, I was this person who loved life, such a positive person, Loved spontaneity, loved my freedom, loved doing what doing what I want when I want, and I loved life. Now, within those five years, I became bitter because I was seeing the worst of society day in day. I was never seeing the best of it. Mm-hmm. I was seeing the worst of it. So that does it. It chips away at you every day. It does chip away at you because you're just thinking. How can people in the world do this to somebody else? How can people in the world do this to whatever? It it does chip away at you. Did I realize I was suffering from mental health issues because I was being I was more negative? I was bitter with life. No, I just thought I'm just hardened to life because I wasn't hardened enough to life before because I was maybe a wee bit sheltered. And I was thinking, is this what life is all about now? Just that hardenedness to and. When you're being surrounded by the people, as you said there, the older people in the police who are like, oh, mental health, oh, don't care about it, just move on, get, get on with it, grow up or whatever they want to say to you. I was never in that culture where people were speaking to me about their mental health. They never said, I'm having an off day, Rob. You would never hear that in the police. They were just either they make jokes about, you know, something traumatic and you think that's their coping mechanism, which is fine. And we, you know, we all need coping mechanisms, but you need a coping mechanism that is also balanced with being able to speak 
honestly about something mm -hmm. you can make your jokes but you also need to be like hold on actually this actually affected me mm -hmm. because by just having that coping mechanism you don't have that other side i mean by making the jokes you're not understanding wait a minute this is affecting me a lot more than it actually is and i didn't realize i had mental health problems until probably about 2018 so though it was during my my police career that just three years into my police career that i realized i was actually having mental health difficulties because I'd be working a shift and on my days off, I'd just stay in bed all day because I was so negative in my outlook to life that I didn't want to get up. I just thought, what's the point? I was so exhausted mentally and physically that I didn't live a life outside of the police and I'd get out of bed and then go back to work. Would you say that you were a functioning depressant at that point? Or was it depression? Was it depression, you say? Because yeah. when you describe that then, I, I've... I, I know that the, the PTSD, which we're going to talk about in a second, I know you got diagnosed with that, but I, yeah. it was probably so I didn't know that depression was part of it. But when you were describing that just then, that was me to a T. Now, I literally would have those days where I couldn't get out of bed and then I'd have to go to work. So then you put on your little fake mask and then you go That's to work it. and pretend everything's okay. And then you get home, you take the mask off and then you literally spend the next 24 hours in bed and you put the mask on. And that's literally kind of how I describe it. My, my question to you with this is, did others around you notice and see the change? Because for me, people around me didn't notice because, again, I was putting that mask on externally. So you sort of mentioned you noticed your character changing. Did others around you notice? No. No, but no, no one noticed around me because you've said it perfectly. I had that mask on. And I was the one in the muster room in the police force where I was making people laugh. I was smiling. I was joking. But inside, I was hurting. But I didn't want anybody else to see that. Inside, I was feeling the lowest I'd ever felt. But on the outside, people would have thought, he's a hoot. He's such a laugh. He's great fun. But when I'm by myself at night, I'm thinking to myself, oh, all the negativity. So it comes to myself. And I'm, you'll never escape your mind, you know, at night, mm -hmm. especially when your head's hitting that pillow, it's you in your mind. There's nothing else. And that mask would come off and I'd just sleep all day and all night to the point in 2018 where I did contemplate suicide. I didn't want to live anymore. I was so fed up with my life and how my life looked that I'm so disappointed with the person I had become. I just did not see a way out of it. I didn't see a life that made me get out of bed for. I just saw a miserable, mundane, life that I wasn't here for because that person I described to you who I was before the police set in the scene of who I was when I was feeling suicidal night and day and the job what I'd seen and the lack of support that I received made me like that unfortunately I, I want a lot of people to again I sort of mentioned this in the intro about although we're talking about men's mental health here because the two guys talking about mental health and men it's always the people that you least expect that are struggling with mental health now that's what i wanted to know if anyone if those around you noticed that you were struggling because i didn't know the extent of how much you were struggling so you've just shared that with me then yeah. again i've been in very similar position myself mikey as well very similar positions so we all get this here it's people outside this podcast that are listening in to understand that you never know who's struggling and it's normally the people as you mentioned that they're in the cafeteria laughing and joking etc etc they're the ones that are actually struggling the most and I think it's a really important thing to, to note that mental health doesn't have a, a look, if that makes sense. Depression doesn't have a, oh, he's depressed because it looks different on everyone. And people are very good at wearing that mask. You clearly were good at it. I was very good at wearing it. Yeah. 
how did you get yourself out of that situation? Because like I said, when you're in that headspace, me and Mikey spoke about this a lot. Some people never get out of that, unfortunately. But fortunately, those three still here and plenty more managed to get ourselves out of it. I know I got out of it through just sheer luck and kept convincing myself it's going to get better. Literally just be like, oh, it will get better at some point. And eventually it kind of did. How did you get yourself out of that headspace? In 2018, when I was at my lowest, my dog is the one that kept me going. I looked at my dog when I wanted to commit suicide and he looked up at me and he gave me a big lick and I thought, I can't leave you behind. And it just changed me to pull you away what you were thinking of, I'll get through it, it'll get better. But if it wasn't for that luck of having my dog at that moment, giving me a lick and looking at me in my eyes, I may not be here today, but I had that intervention in my life where he was there and it made me live for another day to think it will get better. And then from that moment on, I did convince myself it will get better. I had my good days and my bad days, but I did think maybe out of hope more than expectation that hopefully this will get better. And if it didn't, I'm not sure what was going to happen, but I just hoped. And unfortunately, there was a day, my last ever shift that changed my life forever and gave me that push to heal. Mm. So I think before we go into this last day, uh, you shift. I think the key word here is hope, as you mentioned. Like yeah. if you have hope, again, that is one of I think this one of, that's one of the last of the freedoms that we have. If you've got hope, then you can persevere through such hardships. And as you mentioned, a lot of people in a dark place don't have hope. And yeah. again, it's that's pretty much the word I had. I was just hoping it would get better. And yourself there, like if you just but some people don't have that hope. But if you can again try and blindly convince yourself of that hope again to take each day as it comes then again the good days will come before we go into this last day of the show there's one question i want to ask you um what did you need looking back what did you need support wise that would have stopped you or at least helped you not get to that uh that dark place was there anything looking back at retrospectively that could have been in place either before you joined the police like on your training while you're on the police force is there anything from what you know now after you've been through all this and you've looked back was there anything that stands out where it's like i needed this this would have helped yeah. i think for me i will have to address the culture in the police if the culture was better i think it would have changed a lot of things because you are the average of who you surround yourself with i was surrounding myself with people who were kind of macho macho didn't care about mental health we'll just move on have some beers for the lads that wasn't me that wasn't who i was but i started becoming like that as a coping mechanism because well i'll just fit in with them because that's what they do so it must be okay so the culture has to change and if the culture was different where people were like you and me, where we were open up, opening up about our mental health and we had these in-depth conversations rather than superficial jokes to, you know, bypass how they're actually feeling, that would be completely different. And my story would be completely different. And I could have potentially still be in the police now, who knows, but the culture needs to change. And it's probably the hardest thing to change when you've got so many officers in a police force and so many older ones too how do you start changing that culture that is a question that it still needs to be answered but it needs to start from the training at the police college that with these people who are going out are brave enough to 
say to people, hold on a second, let's actually, let's not make this joke, let's talk about this seriously. But as I said, that is, that's something that I think is very difficult to do, to change the culture overnight. That is going to be a long process. But the police in general need to be a lot more resilient to allowing people mental health days, for example. Because mm-hmm. if you put a mental health day out there, you're making it clear to your staff, we take this seriously. Instead of, we need staff so you can't take a day off. Mm-hmm. Instead of getting phone calls three hours before your shift saying, by the way, can you do a 12-hour shift instead of a nine-hour shift tonight? It needs to be, by the way, if you're wanting a mental health day, you take it because we need to look after you. Mm. And that's some of the things that they need to change. Mm. They need to look after their people because without their people, they don't have anything. It needs to start from the the, the, the top down. But again, yeah. as you said, it's very hard to, to change our culture up there. Um, oh, that's it. I was going to say, there's one thing I want to pick up on there and it's about uh, jokes. Now, I have got no issue with people joking about mental health. Yep. Same. The problem is the difference between joking about it in a horrible, nasty way there's a difference between joking about it because it's a coping mechanism and you're not actually dealing with it versus you actually understand it. You're healing from it. And actually the joke is done in a way where it's actually, I mean, you understand the complexities of it and it's like a lighthearted thing, if that makes sense. Definitely. I don't think mental health should ever be a joke in any way, shape or form, but when people have gone through it and you can share that common ground. I think that's okay. I, I, I went to see a comedian recently and he was very, very good. Daniel Sloss, his name is, and he was absolutely fantastic. Oh yes, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. The, the, the complexities of what he was talking about, he understands it. So when he's talking about it, the jokes, I'm like, yeah, he, he clearly understands it and he gets it. As you mentioned there, the police forces, football teams, all that sort of stuff. People are joking about it and they're brushing it off like it's not really a thing. It's like, this is really serious, huh? but no, we'll just, no, we'll just leave that there. It's like, no, no, no. You need to really unpick that because you're using that joke to basically say, I'm struggling here. I don't know how to talk about it. So I'm just going to see how this lands. And then the problem is the other people don't know. How to, so then they're like, oh my God, he's just throwing this thing. That, that resonates with me. That's making me feel a certain way. Let's just call the guy pussy and laugh and joke off, and then we crack on that day. Does that make sense? That that that, that seems like how it, it's the same. I've never been in the police force, but it's the same in football teams. So it's like I I, I get it. Yeah, it's and it's not unfortunately, especially men. We're talking about men's mental health here, especially. And you think men have it hard in these environments. Not that women don't have it hard, but men have it hard in these football teams in this macho culture that exists in life, where if a woman opens up about her mental health to another woman they will not have the same reaction and a lot a lot of times they won't have the same reaction when a man does it you you have no idea how that will land as you said you'll be called a pussy you'll be able to be told to grow up or get life or stop or i don't know stop being silly or something like that you have no idea how it's going to land and this is where it's so important to surround yourself with the right people because if you've got the right people around you who will understand it and take on board and be like I know what you mean here, mate, and let's talk about it. It's so much easier to then in future open up about it. But when you've got, if you've seen somebody make a joke to somebody else about them struggling, you're not going to open up to them, are you? You're going to think, I cannot open up because I do not want that ridicule. And unfortunately, from my experience, that was the police in a night. That yeah. macho culture, it was a massive football team where they were all taking the piss, having a banter, and I can take it and I... I think it's needed at times, but not to the detriment of opening up and being, if you're scared to open up because you don't know how some, what someone's going to say to you, then it's wrong. That's the difference. You sort of hit the nail on the head there. Like there's, there's banter, having a laugh. But I said, if it's at the expense of actually allowing people the safety and comfortableness to actually open up, 
that's where the line needs to be drawn. I think it's really interesting going to talk about weakness as well. Um, I've said this before on the podcast, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it until I'm on death's door. Um, as men, to actually open up and discuss their mental health and their struggles is the strongest thing you can ever do because once you figure out what's going on inside here, like that is people, people talk about being strong and et cetera, et cetera. And if people want to call people struggle with their mental health and they come out the other side and actually dealt with their issues, people want to call them weak. They don't understand it because tackling here is the hardest thing you'll ever go through in your life. There's, there's nothing worse than what goes on inside your head. No one can say anything externally. Nothing externally can be worse than what goes on inside your head. Even if you see the worst experience of your life, what goes on inside here will be a million times worse than what we've actually witnessed. So uh, never, ever, ever has mental health been traumatic, been, been a weakness. So I just want to make that very, very clear. Now, let's move on to your final day on the shift. Can you, again, paint this pitch for my audience about what actually happened there? Because we talk about traumatic events, and you've kind of mentioned that a few times, but this was like the creme de la creme. So can we just take our audience yeah. back there and paint the picture? Yeah, definitely. As you said there, like there's, I had so many traumatic incidents in, in my police service from cutting someone who'd hung themselves down and he was lying on my shoulder and bringing him onto the ground after he'd hung himself and he'd been there for hours to, you know, dealing with road traffic accidents, whatever. I've seen traumatic incidents left, right and centre, but this last day, there's a personal element to it. So firstly, it was about 10am, I was on shift and me and my colleague were driving along the, the motorway and we all of a sudden we saw to the side of us this individual in a car and he swerved off intentionally to a parked lorry who was in the hard shoulder and he rammed right into the back of it and he sped up and we thought what's happened here we i will still remember that loud bang that happened after after what he, he had just done so we had we just witnessed it and we turned around immediately and attended the car was in a in a banking, so to speak, and we couldn't get to him. However, the window shield, the window shield, and all was was smashed, and we could see him looking at us. But he was bleeding out. He was the blood was spurting from his mouth, and we tried drastically to try to get to him to try to help him. But unfortunately, we witnessed his last breaths in this world, and it was a very hard thing to realize uh, to see at this point trying to help somebody, trying to get there, but unable to help. And just watching him take his last breaths, mentally looking at it, you thought, well, that's enough for one shift. That's brutal to put it any other way. That is brutal. And you know, we found out that you know he was feeling suicidal and he had intentions to do it. And obviously when you looked at the intention with what he did with his car and that part, lorry, it was clear that there was a suicide element to it four hours later and we're talking we're talking about that move on culture earlier four hours later i'm still on shift and my colleague then has a heart attack on shift and passes away and i still remember watching the paramedics give him cpr and he gets put into the ambulance and the ambulance door closes our sergeant goes in to check on him the situation and I remember those doors opening and my sergeant telling us he didn't make it within two minutes my sergeant then told me can you take statements from people who've witnessed this I just witnessed the paramedic giving him CPR I'm not having to relive that moment 
over and over again when I take statements. I always wanted to protect others and my colleagues. My colleagues were younger service than me. And I said, oh, I'll take all the statements because I didn't want any of them to relive that incident again. But who protected me? Well, I wasn't protecting myself. I should never have been made to, make, to, do, to, do, to do those statements. But that was, ended, it ended up being my last ever shift. Two traumatic incidents, one very personal. And it changed my life dramatically because of how it shifted my mind and what it made me, how, how it changed how I view life, basically. And it was brutal. It was the worst day of my life by far. But now looking back on it and having the healing journey that I've had in the last three years, I look back and say, now it's, it's, it was the best day of my life. And I know that sounds maybe quite brutal to some of the listeners, but it ended up being the best day of my life because I had to go through that. I had to witness those things to go through the changes. And I'll talk a little bit about the changes in a minute, but I had to go through it. And it was an unfortunate thing I had to go through and I wish I never had to, but I had to do it. I, I think anybody that struggled with their mental health and has come through the other side, the key thing has come through the other side, and here's you say that that was the best day of your life and the worst. Yep. We'll understand exactly what you're talking about. I say the best depression is the best thing that ever happened to me. And people yep. are like, are you joking? It's like, no, no, no. Because without that, I would have carried on living my entire life, just gradually going downhill and getting worse and getting worse. I kind of needed to kind of just fall off that cliff metaphorically to hit rock yep. bottom to be like, well, I now have a choice. Like right now I'm faced with a choice. I can either end it. Or I can actually rebuild and do something better. And then once you go through that, we're just going to talk about in a second, the process of changing here, you then actually find yourself, which the place I'm at now, I understand myself more than most people out there that haven't done the work. I look yeah. at people and, and you can see the difference in that. So again, you saying that completely resonates with me. Yeah. Again, and as you said, me and Mike say the same thing, and everyone does. You, The reason why I do this podcast is that I don't ever want anyone to go through what I went through. I don't ever want anyone to hit rock bottom to then think ah, it's time for a change. I want people, I want to catch people on the way down. If I can catch them halfway down the cliff for them to realize I'm not going the right way here. I'm not feeling good about my life. I need to change. That's better than you hit rock bottom and you literally have no choice. So how did you then start to go through this change? Because as I said, that is, that's traumatic. That, that, that Either one of those things in and of itself is enough. Yep. To have them back to back on top of, because this is like the game of Bookaroo, I imagine. These are just, the ice, the straw broke the camel's back and finally yes. it kind of all came crumbling down. How did you begin the process of unpicking that? What did that actually look like for you? It was, it was difficult. It was very difficult. And I was, I was fortunate that my mind actually made me stop because if I had went back to work the next day and the day after and the day after, I may not be here today because I would not have been able to go through that healing process. But my mind, because of that incident, and you, you said so many of the incidents on top of each other, that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And it actually, my mental health manifested itself in a physical injury in my knee. It was a weak point, a weak point in my, um, I had injured it a few years before, but you know, it was, I hadn't just actively injured it, but all of a sudden my 
mental deterioration manifested itself in that knee. And I struggled to walk for the next five months. And that gave me the time to not go again. And it was the first time in five years that I wasn't going again, going again in the place because I took the proper time off. Annual leave isn't enough. A couple of weeks here and there isn't enough. That five months was what I needed to reevaluate where I was in my life. And my healing journey started with that of figuring out who I was and where I was and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be and who I wanted to be. And when I looked at both those things, I realized how far apart they were in alignment, who I was in the place compared to who I was wanting to be. They look like a completely different person, not to mention the looking about looking at the person who I used to be. They were all different people. And I thought to myself, I'm seeing clearly now that there needs to be a change. And that's where my healing journey started, asking myself the tough questions. And I feel like when you go through the, the worst possible time in your life, the only way is up. The only way is up. I couldn't have lost anything more. Like I, you know, as I said, mentally, I was done. I was not ready to cope with another shift. I couldn't do it. Therefore, that's how I viewed my life. And that's how I viewed my recovery, that I could only get better. And being able to be by myself and reflecting and analyzing on how my life looked and so many different aspects of my life, who was in my life, did it make me happy? Did they make me happy? What was I doing in my life? Did it make me happy? The job, the location where I was living, anything, every single aspect of my life I looked at and I thought, well, does that make me happy or not? And I started to then unravel my life from there and started changing those things. And one of the first things that changed was my job. Hmm. I needed to leave the place officially, although I was on sick leave at the time because of my knee. I needed to actually leave that officially and know I'm never going back to that. And I did, and it was the biggest weight took the was taken off my shoulder ever and my recovery was only allowed to progress because I was brave enough to take that first step mm. and to the listeners out there we all need to be brave enough to take that first step it might be a risk and it might seem like a big risk at the time but trust me if you're brave enough to take that first step the rest of the steps are a lot easier and it will pay off especially when it comes to your mental health, nothing is worth your mental health. Definitely. Like for, for me, no risk is worth your mental health. If, if something is really affecting your mental health that yep. much where you're at bottom, nothing can, nothing's, nothing's worth it. And exactly. I, I, I just want to just unpick the steps he took in. Basically, because um, again, what you've said is absolute gold. Like, and it's all about that self-reflection. And again, long-time listeners of the podcast will know massive on this. Again, the guests that have on, there's common themes. And I always say that's common themes on how this kind of works. It's asking yourself the hard questions. So what order did you do this in? So I'm, I'm going to assume you didn't just wake up one day, uh, literally the day after, and you're like, right, my knee hurts now. I'm just going to start asking myself some questions. Like, how did this actually look? So just so my audience can understand this, because uh, again, also you've said it, fantastic. Like tough questions, reflecting, analyzing, who's in my life? How do they make me feel? Um, does this make me happy? Again, absolute goals. So we're going to put this into some sort of structure because people listen to this who may yeah. be struggling and being like that. They'll kind of want to know, no, no, like, what do I do? 
So yeah. I know that this is what you did. And again, there's loads of different ways to do this. So we're just talking about your personal experience here. But what did it actually look like for you? What steps did you actually take? If you can yep. sort of remember like the, the order and how and when you did it. Yeah. The first, I think initially I was just so glad to be away from that go again culture that I just took a few days to relax and unwind by I just just relax in my life and just think right let me just do the things that makes me happy I was in so much agony with my knee but I was just watching some of the, my favorite tv shows and it's so simple but I was just doing stuff that made me happy I was out of bed and I was just watching some of my tv shows I was with my dog playing my dog obviously limited because I couldn't barely move but I was focused on myself I didn't focus on anybody else I just focused on myself and what I wanted to do and then during that process for that five, those five months, obviously I could just watch TV and my favorite shows for the rest of my life. The first thing, the thing I did was, what am I going to do with the job? What do I want to do with the police force? And I had to ask that question of, is this going to be for me longer term? Could I get a different job in the police? Could I, you know, go back onto frontline policing or what how did that look for me and I had to look at that because that was the thing that made me unhappiest so I focused on the, the thing that made me unhappiest and sort of like how am I going to change that and I spoke to my parents and I, I kind of I didn't want to speak to my parents about it because my dad would be kind of like no 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 what else are you going to do with your life you need to be in the police and stuff but the reaction that I got from both of them was so supportive that it just, I just thought, oh, I actually can do this. I have the strength here to leave the police because it was such a big step. That's that's a career for people. That's their 30 year career sorted. So to be able to have that strength from being given to me by my parents to say, you can do it and we'll support you no matter what, was such a weight lifted off my shoulders because that's something I feared. I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want to let, especially my dad, my dad, you know, but I loved the idea of me being in the police and my brother's still in the police. We both joined at the same time and he always loves the idea of us being in the police. And I, when I was so open and honest with him about how I was feeling and he gave me his feedback, I was like, well, actually I can't do this. I've got the support. So you need to focus on what's making you un the unhappiest in your life. Focus on one thing, just one thing, what's making you unhappiest because there might be tons of things that's making you unhappy, but I'm sure you will find out what's making you the unhappiest. I then, so I did that. I then also spoke about what I was feeling. It took me a few days, a few weeks. I didn't just, as you said, next day, I'm like, right, I'm happy to speak <laughs> with this. Because was, I didn't know how to compute it. I didn't know. I was, I was stunned. I didn't compute it until after his funeral, my colleague's funeral, to then be like, and I was, I was, was able to attend the funeral and, after that, then I was like, right, there's a finality to that now. Now, how am I going to process this? And it's like, you know, those different stages of grief. It was almost like I was going through those different stages of grief. The acceptance stage, I had to go to the acceptance stage and say, right, I accept that this has happened. I'm not sure why this has happened to me in my life. And I'm not saying, oh, who's me? And, you know, it's happened to his poor family. But I'm saying, why did I witness those two incidents on that last day? I had to ask myself, how am I going to use this for better? And for me, I used it to be able to speak about my mental health for the first time properly. I touched on it a little bit here and there with people, but this was the first time I was like, all right, 
I can now open up about this is how it's made me feel. So the next step is speaking to people. No, it's not going to work for everybody. Some people might want to write stuff down in their diary or something. That's good too. Whatever works for you. It's getting what's in here, in your mind, I, whether that's on paper or to someone else's ears. It's just getting it out, whatever works for you. So I think you need to figure out what's, what's the unhappiest thing in your life and also then get what you're thinking out there. Mm in whatever way, shape and form. And from then you can then, your, your steps will look different, but without those two steps, I think that your healing process can't fully evolve. I agree. I think I, I still remember very clearly the first time I actually, for the first time opened up and shared my mental health with someone. I was working at a restaurant and uh, again, there's an older uh, member, so I say older, she's like 10, 15 years older and she'd gone through the loss of her husband and she spotted from a mile away that wasn't okay. Like I was pretending I was okay. And basically after my, my depression, I realized I'd isolated myself. So I went to work in a pub, put on this mask and pretended I was okay. She saw straight through it. And then I basically started opening up to her. And I remember the first time I fully explained how I was feeling. As you mentioned about leaving the police force, the weight, when I first actually articulated how, how I'd felt, first of all to a woman for a start but then how I was actually able to express how I was feeling for myself because as you said I hadn't processed it I hadn't done any journaling but I said it out loud and then I was like oh yeah this has actually happened it kind of then made it real and then I could do something about it and this is what I say it's very hard to think inside your own head it's very yeah. it can get very dangerous and cluttered in there so again I personally love journaling now I love journaling I recommend it to a lot of my clients if that works for you but if it doesn't just try talking but it's important I've spoke about this before on the podcast you got to talk to the right person for example, yeah, would you have gone to your dad first? Probably not, because again, yeah. although your dad was very open and honest about it, you didn't yeah. know the reaction you were going to get. So that would have been a really poor first choice. So we've all got someone, hopefully, hopefully, not all, but most people have got someone in their life where if something bad happened, you know that one person's always got your back. They're the people you want to talk to first because you want to make sure that you are talking to someone that can understand it and does get it. So Rob, right now, this is absolute gold. One thing I want to just put back on here, which is interesting, I didn't know this, your brother's still being in the police force. Yes, how is he doing mentally? Do you speak about mental yeah. health with him? Like, is that a, a thing? I do, I do. And Paul is very, my brother, he is very reserved and he's probably what I was like. And he is very closed off. And I would, I would often say to him, even now, I'm saying, Paul, you do know I'm here if you want to talk. But sometimes that's not enough. You know, being like, I'm here if you need to talk. Sometimes when I'm with him, I do probe isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? Just ask some more questions rather than just going, by the way, I'm here if you want to talk. I do ask him about, well, how, I, I don't like talking about the police and because, you know, he'll tell me stories about the police. And I'm like, I don't like listening to it, but for him, I'm like, well, just how is the police in general? I don't want to hear the, you know, traumatic thing after traumatic, but how are you in the police and how is this affecting everything else? I'll tell him, Paul, are you happy? One of the things, a simple question to ask people, but are you happy? Whether that's in your personal life or your professional life, because they're all linked, especially in a job like the police. If you're unhappy in your professional life, guess what? It's going to start seeping into your personal life. In one way or another, it's going to start seeping in. So Paul is, yeah, he, he does, he's a lot more reserved, but Paul also has his wife there who I think he does open up to he does have me to open up to but I feel like he thinks that being the old he's the older brother that he's the one has to protect me 
rather than sharing some potential disturbing things to me so i do think we've got that relationship which is a shame and i try to get it out of him saying paul like you don't know i'm here i don't care if i'm your younger brother i'm here for you too but i think that dynamic mm. for him is is important that he doesn't i don't know why it's important for him but you know what it's like it's something it, it's, it's one of the things where again and as you saw mentioned before i know what it's like for me when i was at my lowest i made i've said this before if if I tra- time traveled back, literally me, time traveled back and spoke to myself at my lowest, I'd have told me to F off because I wasn't yes. ready to hear it. But I yes. think the most important thing is there, you're not pushing it. You're just saying to him, listen, I think, the, and again, you hit another, another gold nugget here. It's like, just asking that, how are you feeling? Yeah. Like, but then actually listening. Yes, and I think one, another good question to ask him and others around is like, oh, what are you doing to look after yourself? Yeah. That's a big thing to ask people because most people don't even think about that. When you're so stuck in that, it's like, well, what are you doing to look after yourself? And all you're doing is just planting seeds. I just got planting yeah. seeds. What are you do? You can't do anything. You can't force anyone to do anything. That's the unfortunate thing with mental health. Like again, no matter how if your brother is struggling, we don't know if he is, but let's say he is, there's literally nothing you can do unless they want to or are open to hearing it. But all you can do is just plant those seeds and just hope yeah. that with a little bit more watering, that hopefully, uh, if he ever does struggle, that he knows actually you know what my brother's been through this. Yes. He says I'm there, and then bam. And then it's important that if you are saying to people, it's a key thing here. If you are saying to people, you know I'm here for you. I know you know this, but this is my audience. Um, but if they do reach out, you better make sure that you're there. Don't tell people that are struggling mentally that you're there for them. And then when they actually do reach out, you're then not there for them. So don't say that to someone thinking you're helping if you don't actually genuinely mean it. Because if you aren't in a place to help someone, just don't offer. Just say, I can help you in the sense of if you're struggling, I can pass you on to someone else, et cetera. But don't say you're going to be there if you're not going to be and you're not prepared for that responsibility because that is a big responsibility. Um, Rob, this has honestly been absolutely incredible, like genuinely fantastic. Uh, it's one of like final things, a few things on here. How is your mental health right now? Like nowadays, like, how do you, because I say this before, uh, I still have my bad days. No one's perfect. It's, you can't have the good without the bad. But no. on the whole, how are you mentally and yeah. what things do you have in place to kind of hold you together? Yeah, I'm good and I do have my good days and bad days and suffering from PTSD symptoms where, you know, sometimes I do struggle to sleep. I get flashbacks. I sometimes get intrusive thoughts at night. Usually night's my worst ones. That's where, because I struggle to sleep anyway, maybe the shift, all those years of shift works maybe caught up with me, but I do struggle to sleep and that's when I my mind just runs wild. But I do have coping mechanisms now. I always say, that famous phrase of it's okay not to be okay i add to it and i say it's okay not to be okay but it's not okay to ignore not being okay and i now know that i will not ignore if i'm not okay if i'm not okay my partner is incredible she will be able to speak to me there's no judgment and she's an ear she just listens there's no i think you should do this i think you should do that i think you should it's just listening and yes, there is that support of, well, what would you like to do? But there's no pushing me to do anything. It's, yeah, she she's incredible. And I've got that person in my life where I can tell her anything, how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking. And she will not judge and she'll just take it each step at a time and she'll support me through, throughout everything. So that for me is a big, a big thing for me. But I've also learned now to write down my thoughts, especially at night. I, I, I need to get them out and I write, write it all down. And for me, I find a lot of clarity in that. So I'm, of course, you're going to have good days and bad days. Mental health will never leave you. You'll always, it's like your physical health. You'll have your good days and your bad days. But as long as you know how to cope whenever they're 
a bad if there is a bad day and that's so important and for me speaking about it i cannot recommend it enough especially men you will have so many weights lifted off your shoulder by just speaking to the right people about it because there will be no judgment and i'm 100 guarantee you that i'm sure they've been through something similar themselves mm. i love what you said there about the, the again just getting out of the head of the journey again it's such a powerful thing and to really start trying to understand yourself and your again your patterns we're, we're pattern we're creatures of habit we're creatures of thought patterns or like physical patterns habits so if you can start to notice your own patterns whether it's your thought patterns especially by journaling it out, you understand yourself and you can unpick it. So that when you're having a bad day, you're having one bad day a month now, rather than back in the day, like we were saying, like you're probably having seven bad days a week. It's one thing where like, if you can have a bad day, but rather than it consuming a month, it just consumes a couple of hours and you're noticing, ah, oh, I'm doing that thing again. Ah, right, okay. And you're just aware. I think awareness here is the key. Most people aren't aware of their patterns. They're not aware of their thought patterns, their physical patterns, all these things. They're not aware of the things that are going on, their emotional patterns, their responses. Once you become become aware, you can then start to self-audit. Oh, I'm doing that thing again. And not just for mental health, even in relationships. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you just notice that you're going through the same cycles, you're the common denominator. And the only person that can figure that out is yourself. Exactly. And there's three things that I say. Notice it, acknowledge it, and then heal it. And obviously there's different components to every single one of them, but you need to go through every single one of them to get to the next process. You need to notice how you're feeling. But noticing it isn't enough. You need to acknowledge it. I'm like, right, well, how is this making me feel? I know how I'm feeling, but how is it making me feel? Why am I feeling like this? Go deeper and then heal it. Wherever that's journaling, wherever that's speaking about somebody to somebody, you need to go through all three to then get to the better place. And however that looks for you in terms of healing, whether you, as I said, whether you want to speak to somebody or not, there's, you have to find a way to get it out of your head. Because when it's just you and your head, it's it's a scary it can be a very scary place it, 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 it's scary because it's there's no user manual you don't no, know what no. to do if you're, if you're sat there and there's a user manual right so i'm here by myself and i know what i want to do <laughs> yeah. you kind of figure out it's like me and my macbook if you gave me an instruction guide on how to take it apart and put it back together i'd be like it's gonna be really hard but i can kind of figure it out we have no instruction manual so try and figure it out yeah. yourself it's exceptionally hard so as you said Definitely. just reaching out there's loads of great uh, resources as well great free resources again like again we're going to talk about in a second um what you'll do which is fantastic again you've got podcasts that are out there youtube channels uh, books which aren't necessarily free but you can find them online if you need to but like there's resources out there to help you uh one final question i ask all my guests um to wrap it up uh, what advice would you give someone who feels stuck and out of control with their life right now i would say i looking at what I'm doing now and looking into happiness, my advice is focus. If you're feeling stuck, focus on what is making you unhappiest in your life. If you can write down everything that's making you unhappy in your life, you can change it. Cause if you find out what, you know, it's hard to find out what's how you can be happy and what makes me happy. That's hard. But if you can find out what doesn't make you happy, you're, you're canceling those out and you will find out what makes you happy. So if you are feeling stuck, yeah, just write down what is the thing that's making you the most unhappy. Start with that. And then once that gets cut out, there'll be a potentially a new thing that's making you unhappiest that's taken over. And then focus on that. It's a process. Don't think it's going to be all better in a day because it's not. That's but, a key one. That's a key one you said there. Yep. That's a real key one because what can happen is you get a bit jolly because you have one good day. And if yes. you're going, I'm good now, 
Yes. Yeah, and then, but then you beat yourself up a little bit. So I just wanted to, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but that's a real key thing there. Just understand like it is a process and it takes time and you didn't start to struggle overnight and you're not going to be able to heal yourself overnight as well. So I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but that, that was, I just wanted to pick on that. No, no, you, that's it. You've hit the nail on the head. It's like, I was going to say that too. It took you a long time to all that to build up that unhappiness and your mental health issues. That didn't just happen after one day. So allow yourself those days, those months, those years to to heal. And that's what you just need to be kind to yourself too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> be kind to yourself is a, is a, something that I really struggled with. That was one of my biggest yeah. things because my self talk was so negative. Uh, yes. Again, basically becoming your own best friend. You're going to be with yourself for the rest of your life. So yes. About time you start to become your own best friend. Um, can you talk to me really quickly uh, about the rise of happiness? I think I'd like to get you back on the podcast again to, to talk about yes. this. First of all, about PTSD, because I think we've got a lot more there to unpick. So I'd yes, love definitely. to have you back on that. And also I'd love to talk about this as well. So can you just quickly for my audience, um, what yeah. we can do with this, we spoke about this before. I'm actually going to put the latest episode of this uh, in the show notes so you can download it for free. So when he describes it, like you can get your own copy of this. So uh, what is Rise of Happiness? So Rise of Happiness is a free wellbeing magazine. It's full of inspirational stories by the people themselves. So people will share their stories word for word of their mental health journey or their well-being journey. They're all completely unique and different, but the important thing is it's in their words. We do not write their words. We do not take some little quotes left, right, and center. It's all in their words. So you can probably see this raw, unedited ver uh, version of someone going through their whole mental health journey or their well-being journey in general. Along with that, there's also expert well-being and mental health tips from you know nutritionists, sleep experts, you name it. So we've got a wee nice wee mixture there. And the whole idea is to break down that stigma of mental health and well-being in general, because they both go hand in hand. It's called rise of happiness because the aim is to increase happiness in society. We want to see the rise of happiness in society. And I want to give back to people who like me needed some other resources out there free of charge and to see i'm not the only one who's going through this and there's people in the public eye but there's also everyday people who are sharing their stories because we are all the same underneath and we all go through the same stuff you could not say it any better like we're all one story we are all all the same and you hear the stories like my story your story mikey's story all the guest stories and the principles are the same we, we are all one um exactly. honestly rob absolutely incredible like i said the, the 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 latest episode or edition of that is going to be in the show notes so whether you're on youtube or spotify or apple podcast just click on the link down there and you can download that for free uh rob where can people find out more about you do you have uh, a social media at all is there anything any way people can connect with you at all yes if you give me on linkedin just rob hosking on linkedin i'm sure we'll put that in the screen. and then also just the rise of happiness website there's a contact form there. Send us a wee email. You've also got the, our email address in there. Send us a wee email if you want to get in touch, want to be involved in any way. And, uh, and yeah, I'm LinkedIn. So they're, they're the way for me. Uh, Rob, honestly, this has been such an amazing conversation. I knew it was going to be good. Um, thank you again for being so open and honest with your with your story as well. Uh, I know it's never easy to actually take yourself back there to to experience that to then help other people. But you've definitely helped me today. Uh, the information you've given has been absolutely important. It's been absolutely important. Oh, you're doing, appreciate it. Thanks so much for all you're doing and for having me on.